Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Now, if you're like me, you can often remember the lyrics to a song or even part of one, but you don't always remember the artist. Like music has a way of living on long after the artist, which is part of the power and the magic of music. Today, I have a special guest, Brian Young, who manages the music legend Del Shannon's website and the Del Shannon Appreciation Society, which is preserving his legacy. He's also working on a biography on the life of Del Shannon. And we're going to talk today about some of the history of this incredible artist who launched his career here in Southwest Michigan. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you, Michael. Well, Brian, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? How you how did you become involved with preserving the history of Del Shannon? Sure. Um, well, I was a child of the 80s, um, but I was raised on music of the 50s and 60s. My father was into the Platters, the Drifters, uh, Benny King, Ray Charles, Motown, uh, a lot of the pop acts of the 50s and 60s, including Elvis. Um, you know, he grew up as Southern Baptist, so he was into a lot of the R&B and gospel music. Um, but I lean more towards liking the 60s pop, you know, Del Shannon, Lou Christie, uh, Roy Orbison, Leslie Gore, um, those rock singers of the early 60s. Uh, my mother was German. She was well-educated and had a double master's degree uh, as a linguist. Um, and she was into <laughs> Mozart, Tchaikovsky, you know, those heavy classics and French singers like Jacques Brel. Um, wow. So the only thing that they really had in common um, were the Beatles uh, and German polka music, of all things. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> uh, you know, they loved that oompa-pa stuff. But long story yeah. short, my father was a military policeman in the Army, uh, stationed in West Berlin from 60 to 64, and then again in 77 to 80, which is when I was uh, there. Um, he was... Uh, on detail at Checkpoint Charlie when John F. Kennedy gave that famous speech, Ich bin ein Berliner. Wow. Uh, and he was lucky enough to be a security detail um, and a police escort for Bob Hope, Sidney Poitier, and Mahalia Jackson, the uh, great gospel singer. Um, mm -hmm. One of his primary duties in West Berlin um, was to be a liaison between the American, British, and French soldiers uh, that were stationed there to kind of tie in with the Germans. Really? Yeah. Um, it was yeah. sort of a soldier's fellowship group called Contact, and it was spelled K-O-N-T-A-K-T, um, which kind of brings me how I was first introduced to Dell's music. Um, Dell was on tour in West Berlin in November of 79, and I first got to see him play when he came through Berlin. Wow. Uh, he played uh, a club called the uh, Cheetah Club. Uh, it was this futuristic discotheque club uh, with these two tunnel entrances as you came in. And inside, there were all these diagonal beams, a revolving disco ball in the ceiling. It was kind of like a spaceship. I was only mm -hmm. seven years old, so that's why I kind of vividly remember it all. Um, anyway, because my father uh, knew the folks that ran the joint and because he was doing his contact outing there, I was allowed to uh, kind of tag along and sit on a catwalk sort of off to one side and watch Del Shannon perform uh, with my feet dangling through this uh, crazy catwalk. Wow, that must have been fun. Yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, for a seven-year-old. So yeah, uh, in a way, you know, because um, 
uh, I just remember it was a smoky place. You know, the concert had such an impact on me that the next day I was telling my mom all about it. And uh, mm-hmm. my father saw that I was excited and he said, well, I got those records. And he went back and checked his record collection and he had the first two big top uh, records by Del Shannon, Runaway and Hats Off to Larry. So, oh. of course, I played those, you know, round and round and round to, to death on the on his uh, record player. Yeah. Wow. And those were the only two records that he had um, of Del Shannon. But, uh, you know, so listening to those singles, you know, there was Del's falsetto, you know, singing the YYYs and the high pitch organ instrument in the middle of those songs, which I later learned was a musitron played by Max Crook. Um, fast forward 10 years. Uh, now it's September of 1989 when I saw Del Shannon perform in Puyallup, Washington, where I was living Um Later on, growing up as a teenager uh, at the Washington State Fairgrounds, I had, you know, I saw Adele um, for the last time. I was 16 years old. I just had a driver's license uh, and my first car. And I thought he was still looking good. You know, he's saying better than ever. And I remember he wore the same outfit that um, that evening that you see on his final album cover, Rock On. Um, I remember that he, he broke uh, two guitar strings that night, and uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it was great. It was wonderful. So, uh, you know, when Shannon died, I mean, it was five months, you know, later to the day that, that he had passed away, and, and uh, I lost my music hero. You know, I was 17 years old, and it crushed wow. me. So it was one of those, you know, the formative kind of years, I guess. And I think that was why it was so devastating for me, you know, Um I think it was the way that he went out, you know, by suicide. I didn't really understand why, uh, you know, he did that. He was a, I mean, I was a huge fan of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Tom Petty had full moon fever, um, Mm -hmm. his first solo album, which was on top of the charts. It was 1989. He had free fallen and running down Mm -hmm. a dream had, uh, you know, the, the lyric in there, me and Del were singing little runaway. Mm -hmm. Um, so he kind of name checks, both Runaway, the song, and, and Del Shannon, and, and so that kind of tied in. And I just thought that was the coolest thing because all my high school friends were into Tom Petty, but not really Del Shannon. But I had I had found a link to kind of tie him in and try to kind of rope some some of my friends into Del's music, you know, where I could. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> um, cool. Well, you've done a lot of work on his biography, right? Yeah, you're writing a biography. Could you tell us a little bit about? the timeline of Del Shannon's early career that you've researched. Uh, so the listeners that may not be familiar with his history can kind of get a, a, an idea of how he started and, um, sure. And, and some of his early success. Yeah. Well, he, uh, when he started out, you know, in Battle Creek at the high low club, uh, he was actually in a band, uh, called Doug DeMont and the midnight uh, and the moonlight ramblers. Um, uh-huh. and Doug DeMont was, kind of infamous in, in the Battle Creek lore. Um, he had, he played, I think, in the Louisiana Hayride, probably his first thing he, that he did in, of any kind of, you know, real importance, you know, where, where Elvis and Johnny Cash were discovered. Um, but, uh, you know, Doug DeMont was probably everything that, uh, that Del Shannon wanted to be um, beforehand, except that Doug DeMont didn't have a record. Uh, which they eventually did. It was a self-funded kind of a thing, but it didn't really go anywhere. There was a beer and wine reference that the DJs didn't like and they couldn't give it radio airplay. So Doug DeMott never really got uh, anywhere. But, you know, he was he was great locally in in, uh, in Battle Creek. and um, But he was a drinker and, and got fired um, 
by uh, Philip Gilbert, who owned um, the Gilbert Lounge and the, you know, that where the Hilo Club was, or the Gilbert Hotel, where the Hilo Club was inside of. Um, when Demott got fired, that's when Del Shannon, or uh, locally, you know, Charles Westover, his real name. That's when he got hired in as the uh, the new frontman, and that's when things started to change. Um, he started to do more songwriting and um, started dabbling a little bit with tapes, and that's kind of when Max Crook, uh, his organist, kind of came into picture, who was uh, going to school at Western Music, uh, Michigan University in, in Kalamazoo. Um, wow. So the first two songs that Dell recorded professionally – were uh, songs called The Search and I'll Always Love You. And they were a flop. Um, they had uh, a great string arrangement behind it, uh, you know, a 25 or 27-piece orchestra, um, oh. you know, uh, recorded in, in New York at Bell Sound, which was one of the top recording studios. Um, but Dell was singing flat. He was nervous in the studio, um, wasn't able to hit the notes. Uh, they had you know, tried many attempts to, to get it down right. And uh, for whatever reason, it wasn't really working. And they were more in the vein of like a Dean Martin or a uh, Bobby Darren or, or a Frank Sinatra mm -hmm. type crooner song. So um, had they have been successful, you know, Del Shannon may have gone a different direction than, than we know him for. Um, right. So because those were flops, you know, he was kind of bummed that he, he had his first professional recording session. And, and I think a lot of that spooked him. And, and uh, he ended up going back to the high low club and he was kind of down and, and uh, his manager said, you know, write something up tempo, you know, so he took another shot at it, and that's when Runaway came about. Um, I think it was in October of 1960. He got the lyrics, or he got the music together first, and then uh, he was mm -hmm. working the carpet store by day, the carpet outlet, which was out on uh, Columbia Avenue. And he finished up the lyrics there and wrote a B-side called Jody. And uh, then he sent those tapes off to the manager, who then uh, decided to go ahead and do a, you know, give a give him another shot at, at a, a recording and uh you know max crook and and dell together drove uh to new york this time with their wives and uh managed to record runaway a number one hit in 61 yeah and that organ that what did you call it the electric organ yeah well it, it's um uh it's kind of a funny story on that uh, max crook he called it a musitron, which was the, the, the bass instrument is called a clavioline, and they were actually built by the Gibson Guitar Company out of Kalamazoo. Um, it was something okay. that was licensed out of uh, France. So I don't think that uh, Gibson had the patent on it, but they built them out of Kalamazoo, which is how Max probably found the thing. Um, but then he heavily modified it he had uh, like a, a fisher reverb uh, space expander you know these garden gate springs and things that he put into it and he had these uh this viking reel to reel that he kind of tore apart and turned it into a, a slapback echo and um you know he had reverb units and foot pedals and all these little things and gizmos and things that he attached to it mm -hmm. so he had this thing heavily modified and and uh it gave its own echo and it had it had this natural string arrangement so even though it was kind of considered the first synthesizer um you know it was an analog unit and uh, it just sounded wonderful you know it had all these great bassoon sounds and things so um 
you know, he was able to do all this, orchestrate all these little things behind Dell when he was singing at the high low club. So I'm sure the, the yeah. crowd, the Kellogg crowd there probably had a, had a treat, you know, you know, at the high low club, they were able to watch all this stuff go down. Yeah. And it's interesting that they, they were able to experiment with the song before a live audience so they could tweak it and adjust it. So they got the proper, you know, they could measure the response. So when they went to record, they had it yeah kind of down didn't they i mean they had they had that whole rhythm perfect yeah because it came across as something completely unique and original no one had really done that kind of uh melody in the background no you're right yeah it's uh so the way it kind of came down is that you know there was and i think um james popenhagen alluded to it you know in in you know what previous podcast but uh you know max had come up with an a minor and a g uh, chord progression and then they just kind of you know started going through the notes and everything and then just out of nowhere max came up with that um instrumental break and i asked him about it and mm-hmm. he said that it just kind of came out of nowhere i mean it was just and the funny thing about it too is that it the instrumental break really doesn't follow along the line of the chords and the melody but somehow it all worked and it's just got this ethereal mm-hmm. weird spacey kind of sound which must have yeah. been you know great in 1961 i mean it kind of tied in with uh, you know, there, America was going through the rocket program and trying to get the first man mm-hmm. in space and everything. And so I think it just had this, it tied in well with this whole... Oh, yeah, the whole Barbarella stuff was yeah, going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then right after, yeah, right after that, he did he did a, he had Hats Off to Larry, um, which again used the Musitron, um, which was actually double tracked because he had these arpeggio blips in there, you know, the bloop, Bloop, they, they kind of mm-hmm. went through, and then he also had the the instrumental break, uh, and so that went to like a number, I think it went top five in Billboard, mm-hmm. um, and then he followed it up with "So Long Baby" and "Hey Little Girl," um, which went number twenty eight, number thirty eight, I think, in the mm-hmm. Billboard charts in sixty one. So by the end of you know by Christmas of sixty one, Dell already had four hits, you know, in the top forty uh, under his belt. Yeah. Um, and his real his whole life kind of changed almost overnight with with Runaway, which was a number one hit. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, it was number one across the board, not just in the U.S. but in the U.K. and also Australia. Right. Yeah, I think it went number one in twenty two countries. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that probably wow. all of the english speaking countries you know all the Brit- british colonies and such you know i mean i mm-hmm. think it was number one even in obscure places like south africa and uh you know new zealand and stuff it was a, a big big record um and you know it was stratospheric i mean it it launched him to number one so he he um and he probably struggled with the with that kind of instant stardom you know he went right from the high low club to uh, his first gig was at the Brooklyn Paramount, you know, and, and uh, he's with all these other stars, you know, Bobby <laughs> V huge. and Dion yeah. and, and uh, you know, lots of uh, lots of mainstream stars. And so it must have been scary for him, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. his farm boy, you know, coming out of nowhere. And, and now he's, you know, thrown in the middle of New York, you know, and and, uh, um, and he had high expectations he had to live up to, you know, that he had mm-hmm. written a number one hit. And his managers, um, because they wanted the publishing and to control and to get more money and royalties and everything, they constantly pushed him to write another song as opposed to uh, cover a song or get a song from 
the Brill Building, which is where a lot of the writers in New York would write songs and give them to, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 60s singers to, to record. And, and uh, you know, Shannon wasn't really offered all that. He had to write his own songs, which proved to be better off for him later, you know, to, yeah. to give him a better lifestyle later when he got all his copyrights and things back. But, um, but he had a great career, you know, in 62, he... He got to tour Australia in January, I think, of 62 with Chubby Checker and Bobby Rydell. Uh, and it was a Chubby mm-hmm. Checker show, so he wasn't quite the headliner yet. Um, uh, Chubby was probably the the next biggest thing to Elvis. You know, uh, he had the twist, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a huge, I mean, it was a huge record. Um, you had all these other songs that kind of followed in the same vein or try to rewrite, you know, the twist and, and you had all the young kids in interested in the dance, you know, in the, in the music, but mm-hmm. also their parents. That was the first thing that I think Chubby had crossed over, you know, with our, uh, R&B and, and pop. And then he was also getting into, uh, the, the parents, you know, getting into that uh, middle of the road crowd, you know, with <laughs> them. Yeah, he, he, Chubby has a way of just crossing over, so many demographics. I saw him live in 1996 in the Atlanta Olympics. He was doing a performance in a town called Roswell, which happened to be, he was performing right across from a store that I owned. And I went over there in the evening and saw the show. And I actually got to meet him oh, wow. because they had a line where you could stand in line for autographs afterwards. Because it wasn't, everybody was downtown at the Olympics. So this was, it was a smaller crowd. But man, he performed just like he was doing it for 300 people he didn't care he just put it he was soaked with sweat when he got done and he was just uh such a nice man you know such an incredible guy to meet and uh you know james popenhagen was telling me that chubby is still performing at that heavy schedule that he was even back then which is quite amazing oh yeah i mean i think the he was kind of like willie nelson in respect where he had his own tour bus and and he would do you know 200 gigs or something like that a year you know or or more you know and and uh, i don't know how he had the energy or still has the energy to to go out there and do it night after night you know (laughs) some of those guys are just born to do it in 1962 just looking at the del shannon website that was the year that he released little town flirt Mm -hmm. which was a pretty big hit in itself it went to number 12 on the uh on the billboard charts here, but it hit number one in Australia and like number four in UK. I mean, that was a pretty sizable yeah. it, follow up a year later, you know, it, it was, you know, and it was, I like to think of it um, as maybe his second um, group of, of uh, hit singles. You know, he had the, the runaway and hats off to Larry sound, you know, with the, uh, mm-hmm. the musicron organ in the background. And, and then he had this, uh, kind of novelty called the swiss maid um that had some yodeling featured in it but after that like you said at the little town flirt he had uh girl uh, that's when the girl groups started coming out in 62 and 63 you know you had mm-hmm. the angels and you know uh, uh, a lot of the girl groups were coming out uh the shangri-las were coming out uh, mm-hmm. um and so it was you know they were looking at a different uh, they kind of strayed from the formula and and probably not wanting to have to utilize the the whole uh, musitron sound and so they ended up using background uh singers instead and it seemed to work you know and, and little town flirt mm-hmm. had its own kind of unique style to it um there's this rolling guitar uh rhythm in there that uh, del said he got from nashville um which in turn kind of um 
uh, I don't want to say launched some of the Mersey beat, but uh, but Del Shannon's often credited with the Mersey beat beat feel because of Little Town Flirt because it was such a big hit. But Australia, yeah, I mean they, I think Swiss Made went to number two um, or mm-hmm. number one there, and, and Little Town Flirt was was a top record. Uh, you know, Australia yeah. just loved him, and New Zealand and. And um, so how would you say that he has shaped the music industry as a whole? I mean, he was very unique in his own time. Yeah. But it was probably more so over in Europe, right? He was kind of like the reverse of the British invasion that we had here. He was part of the American invasion over in Europe with yeah. you know, the, uh, the musician from afar that was the big celebrity. The same phenomena was happening over there with him. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was, you know, there were a lot of American rockers um, that ended up going to to England, um, but not 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 right away. So you, you didn't have, uh, you know, Elvis wasn't over there. I mean, he was in the army, and 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 Chuck Berry was was in trouble, you know, for for the Man Act, and and uh, <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis got in trouble with, <laughs> you know, marrying his cousin, and 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 so there was there was this gap, you know, and you had. Uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper had passed away. You know, they died in that plane wreck in '59, and it just left mm-hmm. this void, I think, in in the rock and roll mainstream. And so, right. Dell was lucky enough to to kind of break out in that void there, where uh, you know, with the loss of the of Buddy Holly and and the others, um, mm-hmm. and just before the British invasion, you know, with the Beatles. So, um, you had uh, you had some of these. Uh, American artists go over to, to England and, and perform and, and Del Shannon was when he got there in 62 for his first tour um, he had already had I think five or six songs um, in the top 20 or top 30 in England so it must mm-hmm. have been the reverse you know of, of like the British invasion maybe not quite to that magnitude but when he got there you know he was relatively unknown as far as you know what he looked like you know aside from the runaway album there wasn't a lot of pictures and everything floating around so uh he was kind of this mystery artist who had five or six you know big hits and so when he got there you know he was uh dion was the headliner i think uh, uh, in the first tour Um, but he was only there for half the tour and and then del shannon was the the headliner as soon as dion flew back to the united states because dion had run around sue and and had been around a little longer so he had maybe more hits but but i think del had more relevant hits for for england i don't think they they quite caught on to the doo-wop sound or maybe appreciated it as much as the united states so um, mm-hmm. For whatever reason, they just managed to uh, to really uh, capture and hold on to to Dell there. So, and it was because of Dell Shannon doing um, Roy Orbison's "Crying" in his live sets with big applause, you know, because Dell would get down on his knees and sing "Crying." Um, that wow. Roy Orbison would, uh, you know, eventually decided to to come on tour. Um, I think the following year in '64, uh, because mm-hmm. Dell had such you know, a great success that Roy said, well, God, I mean, if, if Dell's doing so great singing my songs there, you know, I, I need to go over there and, and see what's going on. And so right, <laughs> you know, right, yeah, in, influx of, of other singers coming to, uh, coming to England. Right. And his, you, you mentioned in the, the, the history presentation that you did at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum last month, that the, the tone of Del Shannon's music was, more of a darker 
tone and compare it to with more darker subject matters like you have runaway you know um you know with this, where it's talking about loss and 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 real life hurt and pain and things like that where at the time it was all the the bubblegum type stuff yeah. that he you know and he was he was kind of different and he kind of resonated with a lot of people um, yeah, well, I can kind of give you a backstory of some of that, uh, you, you know, on how he wrote his songs. Um, I mean, singers of the time were given songs, and, and uh, Dell was one of the very few artists that was a singer-songwriter who also played his own guitar. And uh, Runaway was kind of based off of, uh, you know, a true story. You know, he was dumped um, in high school. Uh, he had mm -hmm. asked a girl named Karen out to the prom. And she said yes, and then she ended up going with another guy, and uh, you know he was he was devastated. And uh, the way that Dell had explained it in one of his interviews that he gave is that uh, you know when there's a breakup, there's there's one person that leaves you know the the relationship to move on to go you know to another guy or another gal, uh, and the other person is just devastated. Where in this case, Dell was the one that was devastated, and uh, you know she was kind of the little runaway that he wrote about. Um, so you'll find some of that in his songs or he'll write on other people's experiences that he sees. Um, but mm -hmm. I think Runaway was really about him, you know, wanting to run away from the farm town of Coopersville that he was in and, and try to get another life. And um, so there's a lot of that in there, but he had darker songs like Keep Searching and Stranger in Town. And because Runaway was a number one hit, you know, I think that somewhere in the back of his mind, he was trying to, you know, rewrite the song mm -hmm. to, to some degree. Uh, Keep Searching kind of starts out the same way, you know, with the A minor and a G, you know, mm -hmm. those kind of chord progression. But it's it's more about, you know, he has his baby by his side, you know, and, and he's, you know, the the town folk don't understand or, you know, the elusive them or they, you know, the, the, the people that uh, don't mm -hmm. approve, you know, kind of thing. Um, so we got to keep searching. And if we got to keep on the run, we'll follow the sun. Well, in this, you know, in, mm -hmm. in some sense, he's still running. Um, but then it gets darker with the next song, Stranger in Town. Now you've got this mystery guy that's, that's following him. And maybe he was hired by, you know, the parents to seek the, the kids out, you know, maybe they're underage, mm -hmm. who knows, you know, he never really says in, in the storyline, but you kind of get this in the back of your mind, you know, and he, you know, there's a stranger in town and, you know, he's after my baby and there's, you know, this whole disapproval kind of thing. And, and so it's, uh, and the production work, I think just got darker, you know, there was more mm -hmm. slaps and, 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 uh, um, one thing that they did in Stranger in Town is they got some two by fours and they slapped them together in in an echo chamber and banged them together. So we run, boom, boom, you know. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so it's a whole different little little inventive exactly. sound that came up. Yeah. With, yeah, and it was more along the lines of maybe the, the mm -hmm. you know the British beat groups. You know, it was something of what was going mm -hmm. on then with a self contained band. So keep searching Stranger in Town were, was kind of like his third set of singles. Uh, you know, maybe along with Handyman and. Um, uh, it just had its own. It's it had its own darker feel to it, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, some songs that uh, you hear on the radio really resonate and become special in the lives of a wider audience of people, you know, more than others. And I think you, that was partly the success of his early songs like "Runaway" and "Hats Off to Larry," uh, but even with his later, you know, songs like uh, you know, 
even little town flirt, you know, or the, you know, everyone has kind of somebody they can identify in their lives with some of those songs that, you know, even the loss of, you know, the girl that turns you down and goes with some other guy out of runaway, that whole story is like, that resonates with a lot of people. Everybody kind of went through something like that in high school or college over the years. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the being, being rejected, uh, being dumped, you know, um, I think the other thing that really made it work with, you know, in the case of Runaway or even with Keep Searching or Stranger in Town is that sometimes the mistake is that, you know, a, a singer may, you know, it's nice to put a name in there, you know, like like Jody mm-hmm. or Karen or, you know, or something. But but never mentioning the name of the girl in the song can make it any any girl. So any yeah, any yeah. guy that's listening to the song can relate to it you know because they've probably been dumped at some point you know at least once you know whether they choose to admit it or not and uh you know and same with the women you know they maybe they're they feel sorry for him you know and and there's that mm-hmm. that teardrop in in his throat that his manager always said uh that Dell had and and you can hear it in some of his songs there's this mm-hmm. you know this angst and anguish you know that you can kind of hear and his music is still being used in television shows today, I saw. The, I mean, he had a resurgence with uh, a crime series in the in the '90s. Was it? I forget the name of the yeah, show uh, was. Yeah, it was called Crime Story uh, right. in '86 um, uh, on NBC. Um, the guy that it was the producer Michael Mann that had Miami Vice, so he was riding high mm-hmm. on Miami Vice, and I think NBC. Um, gave him the green light to do, you know, another series or an offshoot or something. And they decided to do crime story kind of based in the sixties. So they had all the nostalgia, you know, the cool cars, the fins and, and, uh, you know, they used a lot of the music, um, from the sixties, you know, to go around, uh, these two detectives, you know, that were chasing these, um, you know, the outfit and, and, you know, based in Chicago in 63. So, uh, Michael Mann had called, um, you know, Dell's office there and, and asked, uh, Hey, can you rewrite runaway? Um, I want to write it about two detectives instead of about a guy and a girl. Um, and I think he was paid like $50,000 or something, which was good. And then he got a royalty, mm-hmm. you know, every time, uh, you know, the TV show aired, you know, every week and, uh, it ran for about two years. Um, I would like to say that it's probably the Sopranos of the eighties, you know, uh, HBO yeah. was able to do a lot more things, you know, with, with the Sopranos <laughs> because it was cable. So you had to kind of keep it proper and, and, uh, you know, parental guidance and all that for, uh, or PG, I like to say, you know, for, for NBC with crime story, but really, I mean, it was a, it was a gritty, uh, detective series and, and, um, you know, it was before the Miranda rights. And so there was mm-hmm. some crooked cops and things of that nature in there. And it was a really good show, but it, it, uh, it brought Runaway back to the forefront, you know, on the 25th anniversary of, of when it mm-hmm. came out. And, and um, you know, I think Benny King had Stand By Me, you know, the, the movie. So, that, you know, mm-hmm. there was a couple big, a lot of, you know, old hits that kind of came back. Um, but Runaway was right there, you know, and, you know, in everyone's face there every week. Now, I know that they're working. There's a project in, in the works for a, a documentary mm-hmm. and it's still being filmed right now. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Can you maybe give a timeline, perhaps, when that might be released? Sure. Um, well, I can't really give a, a timeline other than maybe in the next one to two years, and it really depends on 
um, filming. I think that there's a few more key people that need to be um, interviewed in order to, to get the documentary wrapped up and then they'll go into post-production and, and get it put out. So I can't speak to their timeline, um, but it's uh, it's a company called Stars North and it's Mark Bentley and Todd Thompson. Um, they've got, um, they've been working on it for maybe a little, little over two years. Um, the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic has kind of slowed things down a little bit. Um, you know, with, with the interviews and everything, at least for a slow start, but they've got a lot of the footage in the can at this point. And like I said, just maybe a, two or three more, uh, key folks that they need to get in California. And then I'll think they'll, they'll have that wrapped up and, and probably get that put out in the next couple of years. Um, so that's something. Who were some of the people they interviewed on that? Uh, well, big names, Bruce Springsteen. Um, you know, they've interviewed, uh, let's see, Peter Asher, um, from Peter and Gordon. Um, I think there was a few searchers, uh, I heard there was Paul McCartney. Did he also get interviewed? Uh, well, they're working on a, they have one in in production now called uh, Prefab, which has to do with the Beatles before they became the Beatles. Uh, you know, the, when they were okay. still called the Quarrymen, and Paul McCartney was filmed for that. Um, so there might be some pieces, or they're probably going to circle back and uh, you know and, and try to get uh, another segment there with Paul McCartney to to maybe talk about you know when Dell recorded from EDU. Um, Dell right. was the first American artist. We didn't really talk about that yet, but Dell was the first American artist uh, to record a Beatles song and have it put out in in the United States uh, before the Beatles did, and that oh, was called okay. "From Me to You." Um, so there's kind of a, a, a tie-in with that, and and uh, uh, let's see, uh, you know, there's there's some other uh well ben mott tench was another guy that was interviewed he was one of the heartbreakers in in tom petty's band okay. um but okay. but i know they're they're wanting to get mike campbell who was the guitarist for um you know with the heartbreakers and jeff lynn from the electric light mm-hmm. orchestra i think is is probably the other heavy name that they're you know maybe wanting to uh see if they can get on film uh before getting before going into post-production oh, but Dell's manager's been interviewed uh you know Dell's uh first wife Shirley Westover um his son Craig uh you know I know James Popenhagen was um uh filmed for it you know his grandfather had played with Dell at the at the High Low Club and so there's a family tie-in right. and, and some roots and everything that are that kind of uh go into that and and uh um, the Rolling Stones producer Andrew Lou Goldham, he's going to be the na- uh, the narrator for the documentary. So that should be oh, that'll fun. be great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, any other projects in the works for fans that they can look forward to with Del Shannon? They got some any uh, music? Yeah. Shows coming up that are uh, tribute shows or anything like that. Well, James Bobenhagen does the the uh, tribute shows. Um, I know that we're looking at to try to tie something into the Battle Creek Museum and, and maybe get a, a car show uh, tied in with that, uh, you know, to do on an annual basis. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, Copenhagen is still doing tribute shows around the country. I know he's recently um, played Iowa, and I think he's got a few more bookings that um, he's working on right now. Uh, but as far as, like, the music is concerned, um, there is a 
uh, Rock On, which was Dell's finest uh, final album, um, was just recently released on uh, Red Vinyl. Um, it came out mm-hmm. by Demon Records out of England. And there's a Greatest Hits that should be coming out shortly. Um, I think they're going to call it Handyman, though. I don't think they're going to call it the Greatest Hits, but that's also coming out by Demon Records uh, out of England probably this, this year at some point. Um, and the big project that's coming up is uh, another Del Shannon box set, which should be, which should kind of encompass everything that's, or most of everything that um, Del had recorded. So there'll be, uh, there's a country album from '84, '85 that Del did with Warner Brothers that was never released. Um, that we just kind of internally call the Nashville sessions, but um, you know, if licensing and everything clears on that, that's, I think the only thing that's still on the hang up, um, then that'll be included in that. And that should, it'll have all the A's and B sides and, and uh, the album Mm -hmm. tracks and some unreleased demos and things, a lot of fun things for, for fans out there. So, uh, you know, so he also had a a lot of success in Japan. They did some, uh, resurgence or release of some of the greatest hits albums over there he's quite popular in japan yeah he was he was popular in japan um i think some of it had to do with the you know that uh, musitron electronic sound you know the um it's a def um i think the japanese music market i'm not sure if it's the second largest or third largest in in the world Mm -hmm. which is surprising for the size of the country that it is um but they play a big part in in music sales you know in record sales and uh you know del shannon was big there and and he was going to tour in 62 um i think i'm not sure what happened if it was a visa issue or something but he you know his tour got canceled in 62 but he managed to get over Mm -hmm. there in 67 briefly uh, on his way to, to the Philippines um, to do like some radio shows and everything. But he did tour in 87 uh, in Japan um, with Leslie Gore and Johnny Tillotson. Um, they were on a package tour mm-hmm. and uh, they loved him. But you could tell by the audience response, uh, you can find some of that stuff on YouTube, you know, the, the footage of some of the uh, the video that, that was yeah. done there. But uh, But they loved him. I mean, it was, you know, he was big there as well. Yeah, there was a huge uh, resurgence of the old 60s music in Japan that was taking place in the 80s and 90s, you know. And so they were, and I think the same thing was occurring probably in other parts of, uh, you know, the Europe. Oh, yeah. Or over in the Russia. Russia had a bit of a resurgence with the old uh, 50s and 60s music. Yeah, it's a, fans. It's a nostalgia yeah. thing, you know. It's, it, it, um, yeah. It's interesting how things just kind of, you know, how, how uh, music has its own timelines in other countries. Uh, for, for instance, in England, uh, this doesn't really have anything to do with Dell, but in England, um, they have what's called Northern Soul music. And it's mm-hmm. a lot of it is anything outside of Motown that wasn't a hit, you know, that, that became a great, you know, all these great dance filler, uh, you know, music and stuff that was out there and and just like you said with russia or with japan uh you know in the 80s or 90s they you see this uh big resurgence you know in fact dell did a it was a los angeles to japan um 
TV show that was aired live, you know, via satellite or something. So Dell was in LA, but they kind of made it look like it was in Japan for, for an 86 venue. And I think he had, I think it was the coasters and some others were, were also on the, the bill with them. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how, how big he was in Japan. Yeah. Well, anything else you'd like to tell us about, um, Del Shannon's legacy that fans should know about? I just think he was one of those unique artists, you know, that um, he had he had his own style, um, you know, like a Chuck Berry. You know, Chuck Berry would, you know, was was a guy who was older than the rival mm-hmm. teen um, heartthrobs of the time. And, and uh, yeah. you know, Del Shannon kind of fell into that same bucket. You know, Del was 26 when he had his first hit with Runaway. Um you know, Dell was born, I think, 10 days before Elvis, you know, and Elvis was already uh, on record by 54 and, and Dell wasn't on record until 61. So he was seven years behind mm-hmm. Elvis in that respect. Um, but like Chuck Berry, you know, he was an older artist uh, who had a late start, if if you want to call it that, to to uh, to stardom. Um, but he 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 created his, you know, he kind of carved his own niche and, and created his own sound, um, you know, with the falsetto for for a white guy at the time. You know, Jimmy Jones was doing that with Handyman and, and Good Time and, and some of those other songs. Um, but you didn't really hear from a white artist. And then following later, you know, you'd have the Lou Christie and and the Four Seasons. And there was a lot of other, you know, white guys doing falsetto later. But, um, you know, it was his own style, his own songs. Um, and I think, you know, he just his legacy is that he he touched a lot of uh artists down the road you know tom petty mm-hmm. um cited him as as uh, an influence for picking up a guitar um jeff lynn from the electric light orchestra is a huge Dell shannon fan i mean he he puts him up there i think number one before roy orbison or the beatles i mean jeff lynn just loves Dell. um mm-hmm. you know dire straits uh mark knopfler he said he picked up his guitar because of Dell shannon um and you don't hear that a lot. I mean, a lot of a lot of kids at that time, you know, picked up a guitar because of the Beatles. You know, the, you don't really hear that from, oh, I picked up my guitar because of Elvis or because of Del Shannon. You know, you always hear it because of the Beatles, you know, and that impact. Everybody wanted to have a beat group or, you know, their own self-contained band. But um, so Del kind of fell in the middle there between Buddy Holly and, and the Beatles. And, and uh, But he also helped other artists down the road because he helped Bob Seger get connected yeah so there's an interesting and and that story is never really told properly so let me maybe try to since you brought that up uh bob seeger's first recording was in 62 or 63 in max crook's uh living room or basement Mm -hmm. um in ann arbor Uh, it was a song called the lonely one and jackie the thief and then he did a instrumental called mashed potatoes Mm -hmm. um and Max was into all these tapes and machines and he had his synthesizer and all this kind of stuff. But uh, because he had success with Runaway and all this little, you know, uh, makeshift uh, studio equipment in his living room, uh, any local artist kind of knew that, hey, this guy, you know, he he co-wrote a number one hit, Runaway. And so that was Max's claim to fame. Um, But he had this little recording studio. So if you're a broker, you were a kid that was pinching pennies, you know, you could walk in there and Max might take mercy on you and say, you know, for for a couple bucks, he would, you know, record you or your band. And that was the case (laughs) with Bob Seger. And and, uh, Seger, he was in this, I think it was a three or four piece group called the Decibels. 
And, you know, Max remembered him as this pimple-faced kid that came in one day with a couple of songs. And those songs never really got out. Um, And then it was in 64 that uh, once Dell had moved to Southfield, Michigan, you know, just outside of Detroit, um, there there was a group called Doug Brown and the Omens. Mm -hmm. And Dell had met that band through his wife, Shirley, who was, I think, bowling at, it was a club, I think, called Norwest Lanes hmm. um, on 14 Mile Road. But he, you know, while Dell was waiting for his wife, you know, Shirley to finish up bowling or she was bowling in a league there or something like that, there was a band off to the side and he went to go see them and it was Doug Brown and the Omens. Well, uh, he ended up working with Doug Brown later, um, but uh, there was a guy in, in the group called Bob Seeger. And so all those guys were invited over to Dell's house and they all jammed and played music and, and, uh, Dell had recorded, um, uh, Bob Seeger on, on one of his songs called alone in the alone in the crowd, I think is what it was called. So it's kind of interesting that both Max Crook and Dell Shannon uh, were the first two guys to, you know, separately, uh, but sequentially, um, record Bob Seeger. And then of course, Bob Seeger goes off and has this monstrous career. Probably no oh thanks. N- no, probably no thanks to to Max or Dell. But it's kind of nice to know that uh, you know they were all tied into that. Uh, you know, and 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 Seeger was, you know, he was a monster. You know, it was like a rock was in those Chevy commercials. I think forever. Oh yeah, yeah. He uh, he took off probably bigger than any other Michigan artist that I can think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. He was huge. You know. Well, it's been fabulous talking to you today, Brian. How can people find out more about the the? I mean, the, do you want to tell, talk about the Del Shannon website and yeah. other you know, how to contact you if they had questions about anything? Yeah. Or, so if anyone wants to get a hold of me or or has any more questions in regards to Del Shannon, you know, his fan club and the Appreciation Society, or uh, um, you know, or any other questions, uh, feel free to email me at delshannon at comcast.net. Or you can go on okay. to the official website, which is delshannon.com, and you can click on the Contact Us link. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me today, Brian. It's been awesome. And it's a, oh, my pleasure. awesome stories, just great stories about all this stuff. Yeah, that was fun. So I've been talking with Brian Young from the Del Shannon Appreciation Society. He also manages the Del Shannon website. We've been talking about the music legend Del Shannon and... If you like today's episode on Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past, please be sure to leave a review on whatever app you're listening to. And uh, until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating story from the past in here in Southwest Michigan. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.